Hi. Close your eyes. It's time to discover what starting and growing your own business feels like. Whether your business is bed sheets or skincare or jewelry, Shopify's with you every step of the way. Hello. Now, open your eyes. Feel ready to start and grow your business with Shopify. You'll get the tools you need to nurture your growing business and feel the same satisfaction as listening to this ad. This is possibility powered by Shopify. Simply start selling with Shopify today and join the commerce platform powering millions of businesses worldwide. Start selling online today. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com/free22. shopify.com/free22. So today at Cafe Rainy Days, we've got Kavitha Chinnayan. Uh, hi, Kavitha. Hi, Sujata. How are you? Once you get into that rhythm, right, it it changes patterns in your brain, and that has been actually shown with uh, functional MRI studies. How Sanskrit chanting actually changes your neural pathways and and expands your brain capacity. We are very lucky to have Kavitha. She's a cardiologist. professor of medicine and she has studied yoga ayurveda vedanta uh, and she's also the founder of the shabda institute through which she teaches through which she writes um, uh, and and she writes about various aspects of uh, yoga tantra ayurveda vedanta i've been reading her her book heart of wellness so really highly recommend it my usual humble request to please subscribe to the channel so to jump in straight away kavita um, the book um the heart of wellness talks about um bliss received um how would you define it how would you define this so first of all thank you so much for having me on cafe rainy days it's such an honor and pleasure to be here uh, with you sujata thank you the bliss prescription is it lays out this a way of being how do how do i live my life what kind of you know schedule should i follow on a daily basis why should i do that that's all in the first part of the book and then we take it gradually uh one thing after another change your habits change your lifestyle and then get into those deeper parts of the mind because it's in our lifestyle that most of our unconscious patterns come out and so when we start changing our lifestyle consciously then we can start going into the other um subtle parts it's start with the growth get into the subtle parts um so bliss rx or the bliss prescription is really a set of guidelines on how to live your life to to come into this lived experience of what we call bliss and by bliss here it's not some vague blissed out you know ecstatic thing it's really this sense of being grounded and content and and happy within yourself which is really essentially what all of us is always seeking we're all seeking that that sense of um completion you know we're always like kind of after the next thing next thing next thing and never be content right and we settle for a lot of things uh and and say well it's a, a lot of times when we settle for something it's a case of 
sour grapes. I couldn't have that anyway, so I'm going to, you know, resign for this. As humans, we have very, very complicated minds, very, very complicated ways of being with the majority of our lives being really driven by our subconscious mind. Very little of our <clears throat> conscious um, way of being is driven by the conscious mind, actually. Mm-hmm. Our conscious way of being or our what we think is our conscious way of being is not conscious at all. It's completely unconscious. A lot of times, even the way I might, you know, my body language and the way I move my hands or the way I speak or the way I'm looking at you right now, the way I'm postured, the way I am presenting myself to the world, completely unconscious. And it's it's our natural way of being. So the whole point of these esoteric sciences and the traditions is really to First of all, shine the light of awareness into that unconscious part of the mind, which is like the bulk of the iceberg. Only the tip of the iceberg is what we are conscious of. So all these teachings of the esoteric traditions, be it yoga, tantra, Ayurveda, whatever it may be, it is to bring, first of all, this light of consciousness into these submerged parts of our mind so that we can consciously start to change that. and. So that we're not driven by um, these patterns that, you know, to put it mildly, these patterns, our subconscious patterns, really enslave us. The whole point of this is to become free of our own slavery. You also mentioned how most of your sort of behavior patterns are already set before you are seven. And then, of course, you're thrown into this turmoil at teenage with all your hormones going mad. Yes, of course, work on yourself. But how do you pass this on to children? I mean, similar to, you know, similar to somebody like me who is not, uh, you know, in, in the country that you were born and brought up in, in India. And you, you want to pass on these traditions to your kids. The kids, of course, are growing up in the Western world. As a parent, how, how do you, you know, how do you act? How do you teach your children? Yeah, you know, as you know, I'm a parent and I have two um uh, two children who are, you know, one is going to be 20, the other is a late uh, in her late teens. And one thing I have realized, you know, from from being a parent and from also working on myself is that you cannot teach your kids what you are not. The most effective way of instilling anything in anyone is to live it. Because as you know, our children do not take what we say, but they will take what we do and how we are. I truly believe and, and truly respect Gandhiji's words when he says, be the change you wish to see. Whether it is about cultural values or it is about human humanistic values or it, it is about ethical values, whatever it may be, if I don't question my own beliefs, first of all, and then you know, delve deep into my own mind and and why I do the things I do, even with my children, I cannot teach them anything. One thing I have also realized in my own inner journey is that in parenting, for instance, it's so obvious, always staring us in the face, is that we don't have all the answers as parents. I think where we really trip up is to pretend like we do. And especially with our children, 
like as if my life experience is something that they need to live up to. And we we may we may say to our children, well, I you know, no, no, I I want you to have your freedom, but actually we don't internally feel that a lot of times because we are always preaching from our experience. Thanks to my my teachers and my gurus, what I have really learned is to how to really let my children be who they are. A lot of times, 90% of the time, it's lip service. Very, very hard to do. And to let your children be as they are means to allow them to make the mistakes that they're going to make and also to be vulnerable in that place that they can teach me a thing or two. And I don't have all the answers. I don't need to have all the answers. And my cultural beliefs need not necessarily be true. And I'm willing to question all of that because, you know, that's what yoga is all about. And yoga is not to hold on to one thing and say, you do this because, right? And and when it comes to my own uh, rituals and my own spiritual practices, I don't impose that on anyone, even my children, because it cannot be imposed. They have to come, they have to arrive at it themselves. And they may arrive at it if they see a change in me that they would like to inculcate. And then they come and ask me, you know, mom, how do I do this that you are able to do? Because see, you, you see, our children are not fools, right? They can pick up on discrepancies between our inner world and our outer action. If I can use that, my my children, as my mirrors, and that I'm being discrepant here. I say one thing and I do one thing. And if they point that out and I, I use that to correct myself, this whole thing is really about empowering yourself and allow the change around you to happen because you have changed yourself. So... In other words, there is nothing you can actually do for your children other than to work on yourself, particularly in this day and age when our children are influenced by infinite stimuli all around, right? Social media and their peers and all the information being out as it is, that doesn't mean that they become suddenly all of a sudden, you know, wiser because they have all this information because still... We too have all of this information, but having information is not the same thing as actually working on yourself, which is very, very, very challenging. It's very, very challenging to question your own beliefs, to question your upbringing, to question the things that seem very true in the in the heat of the moment, which is really our, our Kurukshetra, right? Our battlefield. That's a very long-winded answer to a very short question, which is, you cannot, you can't do anything to change your children um, other than changing yourself. I mean, effectively, of course, you can enforce and say, oh, I'm going to have these kinds of rules, do this, do that. But, you know, I know from children who have left the house that, okay, they'll do it as long as they're here. But once they leave and they go and live their own lives, all of it will fall away if that change has not happened on a mental, emotional, psychological basis. And that only happens when the change happens within you. And when you change, things around you change. I know that for a fact from having worked on myself and all the work that I do with so many other people. You know, talking about changing yourself, 
me and Kavita met on a, a site called AYP, uh, yeah. which is run by Yogani. Um, and, uh, you know, after having meditated and uh, done self-inquiry practices, etc., for so many years, yes, there is a sense of an understanding maybe of um, I'm not the body or the mind. It can be quite limited where while you're doing your sadhana, you realize, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm not the body <laughs> How do you how do you just rigorously carry on and remind yourself and remind yourself and live it? Uh, you know, for me, the the answer has been um, what I would call guru yoga, and and that is to continuously be in the in the zone of you know of my guru of my teachers. One thing I will say is that there is no substitute, and I guarantee there is no substitute for 99.99% of us. There's no substitute for a guru. Because we can keep fooling ourselves that my intuition is all right. You know, I'm only listening to my gut. But, but the majority of the times, are in what we call our intuitions or the guru in, within us is merely another form of posturing. It's another form of the conditioning that we have taken on. So to have a mirror, a mirror that's not really invested in you in any other form other than for your growth is a gift. It's a gift of grace. And and on the same note, I will say that not all of us are fortunate enough to have that group. And, and I know from my own journey that... Um, a lot of times we don't have a guru because we're not open to it. People always ask me, how do I find a guru? Well, if you're open to it, you will find one. But more than that, you know, it is that opening to that vulnerability that just I was saying before in your previous question. Yeah. If I'm open to the idea that I can be wrong and I am wrong, a lot of times with my children, they become my gurus. But if I'm doing that, thinking, my children are going to show me something in a particular way. That's that's not open. Here, openness means this vulnerability to thinking, I actually am clueless. And, and such a thing is very, very hard, particularly for those of us who are intellectuals, because we know, right? as you just said, I know that I'm not the body and mind. And so if somebody tells me that and, and points that out to me in a in a very, you know, when I'm particularly contracted or when I am, you know, in the throes of, uh, you know, showing that I'm something more, I don't want to listen to it because intellectually I know that, but energetically I'm contracted, right? Because it is when this vritti comes up, it is when this contraction comes up that I have the opportunity to break it. But what we do when we don't have that kind of a mirror is we wait for that vritti to go away so that I feel good again. Oh, yeah, I'm not the body and mind. But what, what about that point when I was contracted? Do I want to know that? And a lot of us don't want to know that. That is why we remain stuck. That thing is the hardest thing to break. Because, you know, when people say, oh, yeah, yeah, I already know I'm not the body-mind. But they continue to act in unconscious ways. Right? Because it remains, that knowledge remains at an intellectual level. It has not actually percolated into the energetic level. Where actually I'm living that even through the, you know, the infinite contractions of day-to-day life. So what what 
I have seen that works for me is this continuous surrender to, you know, this the stream of the guru. Very hard to do when you have a living guru. Very easy to do when you don't have a living guru or that guru is some ideal who's not going to come in front of you and and be in your face. But if you have somebody who's going to be in your face, it's very hard to do. That is what, you know, Tantra really teaches us. As you were speaking, I was reminded of another thing that um, I read in your book. You talk about decluttering. Um, Yeah. Where you say declutter your body and your mind and and declutter your likes. I like this. I have this opinion. I feel this. That, That whole book starts with a lifestyle and a diet. And people will say, well, you know, I'm past my likes and dislikes. I'm I'm not this body. And yet you tell them, stop drinking coffee. No, I can't. Stop eating that. What do you mean? Well, if you're not the body, why should it matter? But you see, it has become such an intellectual concept. I'm not this body, but please, may I have my coffee and my fruit and my sweets and my pastries? because I'm not my body anyway. If you really truly know you're not the body, you should be able to do anything. You should be able to jump off a cliff with no fear. But all these ideas of not being a body also are very juicy and feel very right and and so on. For instance, what happens when you get COVID? What if you go and need to go on a ventilator? Will you still feel that? Or are you going to fight tooth and nail to stay alive? That Very few people, very few, that's why, you know, in the Bhagavad Gita, it says thousands of people come in my search. Bhagavan is telling Arjuna, Krishna is telling Arjuna, out of thousands, not even one will come to me. Thousands may feel they are coming to me, but, you know, we're all worshipping the lower gods, Mm. right? And, And intellectualizing and intellectually we can do whatever it's quite irrelevant but whether we can follow through on a day-to-day basis with even simple things right that's where that knowledge becomes embodied and for that it really does take a discipline it's very easy to not be disciplined at all and and to be loosey-goosey and say i'm not the body anyway there has hardly been one yogi who is not disciplined or didn't come to that point of no discipline through, you know, without any discipline. It really does take quite a bit to arrive at a point where no discipline is required. You know, we start there because it's very attractive and say, oh, I'm not the body. But ask ask somebody like that to leave one thing and they'll have an issue with that. I, I recently attended a workshop with Kavita called the Rasa Workshop. One of the discussions revolved around um, the fads that come into the health world, um, superfoods or smoothies or juices or um, soak this and drink that in the morning and have gallons of water. You know, uh, it's the flavor of the month. And then we are told this is good for you. And we're just following it because some some WhatsApp or some YouTube video told us about this. And I would like for you to talk about it, Kavita. You know, when it comes down to, um, you know, dietary principles, is uh, I'm presuming that's what you're talking about. Yes, yes. Here, you know, in from the standpoint of Ayurveda, it's really not what you eat that matters. It's how, it's the condition of your Agni that determines whether what you're eating or what you're consuming 
is actually going to be of benefit to you. So whether you take a keto diet or you take the you know protein diet or you take whatever it may be, you see that it can become a fad and then you know hundreds or thousands of people can go on it. But that diet never works on everyone. It'll work on a section of people. And then the other section, it doesn't work. If all it depended on was what you eat, even like the so-called Mediterranean diet, a lot of people are on Mediterranean diets and they still get cancers and heart disease and so on. So why? I mean, if it's so, if the diet itself is so good, how come it's not working for everybody? And that has to do with Agni, the, the concept and the principle of Agni, which is the power of transformation. It's the state of your Agni that makes a difference on whether whatever you're eating is really beneficial to you. And when by Agni here, I don't mean fire you know most people think fire it is the power of transformation so when you have a strong agni then you can eat whatever and you'll be able to extract just the right nutrients out of it if your agni is not optimal if it is not healthy or if it is not able to extract things it won't matter whether you eat grass you'll still not be able to extract the nutrients out of it. So the whole principle of diet in Ayurveda is actually about strengthening your agni. So it is not really about what you eat at all. The prescription for what to eat is given simply to, you know, strengthen your agni. Ayurveda doesn't really go into carbohydrates, proteins, minerals, none of that. It's entirely about Creating an environment within yourself where whatever you eat, whatever you're consuming, and by the way, it's not only what you're eating, it's whatever you're consuming through your senses, it is being processed in an optimal way. So when we talk about, you know, whether getting up and drinking a whole bunch of water, uh, eating this that you saw on WhatsApp, I call it the WhatsApp university, people just forward things and think that is the next best thing to do. It's very problematic. Because we are not even aware of what our bodies are capable of doing. And also, the whole point of this Agni, right? One way to scientifically or understand it in modern medicine times is in terms is that when we say Agni, it is the optimal way in which the nervous system is firing, the optimal way in which the glands are secreting chemicals, including hormones and neurotransmitters in such a way that those digestive juices and those hormones and those neurotransmitters are working at their optimum. And that is really what we are talking about, Agni, here. And that's the whole part of the heart of wellness, the first part of heart of wellness, where it discusses that. It, you know, drinking a bunch of water in the morning may not necessarily be good for somebody who has a weak, um, for instance, a weak adrenal gland. And when you say a weak adrenal gland, you it's not really about, okay, should I go and get tested for this or that a hormone? No, because your hormones or the glands in the body are producing these chemicals on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. It's in stimulus. So I'm talking to you right now. There are certain chemical reactions going on. When I'm finished talking, these reactions will no longer be present. They will just die off. So 
like my thyroid is active, my pituitary is active, my adrenal is active, just to produce this much speech, to produce this much thought, and to bring, you know, to, to convert this knowledge that is latent into dynamic knowledge where I'm able to express it and yours to be able to listen it, listen to it and formulate more questions. But once this conversation is over and we go into another realm, this is done. So if you measure something even two hours from now, it will not be true for what happened right now. So it's not something that can be measured. It's not abnormal. However, what happens is it creates a cumulative effect. So something I did 20, 23, 25 days ago will start to manifest now because of this, you know, tiny, tiny, tiny changes through the system. And at this point, I will not be able to look back and say that caused this because one has led to another, to another, to another, to another. You know, it's like a dynamo effect here. That's why we have such a strong, a very recommended discipline, you know, in the bliss prescription say, do only this for a while where you can establish a baseline. You know, unless you establish a baseline, you will not know what the spikes are. If you if you have a chaotic baseline, it won't matter. Whatever you do, right? It, you will not really be able to tell whether it is that hamburger that caused it or you yelling at your child that caused it or something you did, you know, three weeks ago, you went and swallowed some water in a lake or something. You don't know what caused what because your baseline is chaotic. But if you have a steady baseline, then I can say, well, you know, Yesterday morning, I did that, which deviated from my discipline. And now I can see its effect. So even this concept of rasa, to be able to experience something on an esoteric level, can't happen if we are chaotic. Establishing the baseline is really everything, especially on a physical level. Because we are always seeking the esoteric and kind of bypassing the physical, never happens. Even these esoteric concepts can only be experienced in an embodied Atma, right? You can't become disembodied and experience something. Even rasa, to experience rasa, you have to be embodied. Embodied means you have to follow the principles of the body. There is just no escaping it, one way or the other. Does it make sense? It does make a lot of sense. Um, and, and what I was also remembering is, you know, normally when you sort of read books on Ayurveda, it can get really complicated, you know, oh, what, what Prakriti am I? And I've noticed that in your book, you, you give a very basic guideline. We all know yeah. we should be sleeping at a certain time. We all know we should be waking up at a certain time, have some sort of a routine, uh, eat early. We all know that, but it's uh, laid out in a good way. Um, and and so you. something else that, um, again, uh, I wanted to talk to you about. I'm fascinated by this concept of macrocosm, microcosm, and how sort of the earth has its own prakriti, uh, the universe has its own prakriti, we have our own prakriti, and then there's these bacteria that, that are within us who ha which have their own prakriti. The viruses come and go and they have their own. Uh, and it's like, we're really like Russian dolls, isn't it? You know, how, how each of this is affecting each other. And maybe I'm all these bacteria and viruses and whatever I'm interacting with. <laughs> yeah, what are your thoughts? Oh, that's, uh, that's a fascinating topic. I mean, you know, with all the research there is on microbiomes, for instance, we can safely say that maybe what we are is our microbiome, right? Mm -hmm. And um, particularly with a lot of the research now with the 
the association of microbiomes with mental health or with brain health and and why some people get Alzheimer's, some don't. And another way of understanding Agni is through the microbiome. You are your Agni. In other words, what what we have been saying is even with regard to Agni, right? Um, If you equate Agni with microbiomes, it becomes even more clear. That is discover what microbiome is just yeah so what we what we mean by microbiome is that exactly what you were saying that we have a whole host of bacteria different types of bacteria in the in the gut in the body in different systems and the health of our our overall health is actually dependent on these sets of bacteria and and how they function so when you take probiotics, prebiotics, you're actually trying to influence the microbiome in, in the gut or in some other part. But primarily the gut is, is really, you know, what we are finding with modern medicine is that whether it is uh, association with heart disease or brain health or with cancers or many other diseases, including perhaps, you know, um, infections, is that it's associated with the microbiome, as in whatever is going on in your gut is going to influence whether or not you get certain types of diseases and also how you respond to those diseases. In other words, again, it's about Agni. You know, Agni is is what we have been talking about, is that even with with regard to diet and how you respond to certain diets, if your if your microbiome is healthy, you can handle any diet. If it's not, you can't. You can be on a what you think is a clean diet. It won't matter because your very foundation is actually um, unsettled. When we when we talk about microcosm and mac- macrocosm, it really doesn't take you know too much analysis to see this association. Whatever is going on within us is what is projected outside. So I'm sure everybody has had an experience where. You know, I'll, I'll give you a very uh, relevant example. For those of, uh, for, for anyone who has Siri or you have a smartphone or you have a smart device, you just look at something. You, you know, say you're searching for something. The next thing you know, um, all of your searches will be filled with that. Your social media, those are the kinds of ads you'll start getting. Amazon will start recommending those things for you. Google will start recommending those things for you. That is exactly what happens in our personal experience as well. Whatever is in my internal landscape is what is going to be projected outside. It's quite quite fascinating how that happens, actually. You change your mindset, that's what you'll start to see in the world outside you. You change the way you think about something, the whole universe conspires to only present that to you. You think, you know, this set of people are suspicious. You'll only see those people in your consciousness. You'll only learn to focus on that. And it all happens at a subconscious level. We don't even, we are not even conscious. So whatever my belief and my bias is, that's what I will see. And when I change that to another bias, another belief, I'll start to see that. I I think of it as this, great uh, Siri that's listening all the time. <laughs> you know, it's like the universal Siri that's listening and presenting exactly those things. So that is the reflection of the microcosm. 
and the macrocosm. You know what the mistake we make is we look at that and think my thinking is influenced by that. Actually, that's not the case. The way I think is what is projected outside. Mm-hmm. Just like this, you know, you search for something and everything's in your feed starts to reflect that. That's exactly how it happens. But if you look at that feed and say, well, that's why I'm thinking about this, that's that's actually not true at all. Try it and see. Change your thinking to something and you'll only start to see that. You start believing, oh, you know, I, I have this highly developed intuition. I am this amazing person. I have this spiritual ability. Everything in your consciousness will start to actually project that to back to you. So you you reinforce that thinking when it may not be true at all. And then, you know, that's what we also call synchronicity. Synchronicity is really this reflection of the microcosm in the macrocosm. Isn't it two ways? So It is always two ways. It is always two ways. But whatever is in my internal landscape is what will be projected in my life. Hmm. So one thing I tell my students is examine your life. Take a good long look at your life because you have manifested it. We never want to believe that because we think, I would like to think that my life is actually a result of, you know, being a victim to my circumstances. But that's not true at all. How powerful we are is that we manifest the life that is within us. Whatever is internal, that is exactly what will be manifested outside. That's that's how much power we have. And for that, to actually understand that first, we have to stop being the victim. That's the hardest thing to do because it's far easier to blame circumstances. And that is the whole teaching of karma, actually, in, in our tradition, is to if we understand karma really well on a very deep cellular level, we stop being the victim. But of course, we use it as an excuse that, oh, that's my karma, or oh, yes. this is, oh it's hereditary, so I've got it. Or, um, exactly. Yeah. And and that is all victimization. Mm -hmm. Or it's sour grape. Self-pity, self-blame, none of that is actually going to work, you know, in in understanding this micro and macrocosm. And, and, you know, I'm a Sri Vidya Upasaka. So for me, the, the greatest understanding of this oneness of micro and macrocosm comes from the Sri Chakra or the Sri Yantra. And that is the perfect perfect um you know teaching of this oneness between the micro and the macrocosm and um yeah, that's that's really the topic of my book fractals of reality uh, you talked about being a Sri Vidya upasaka for the benefit of the audience you've done so much of chanting and shlokas and uh, lots of sanskrit chanting um where did it begin what sort of benefits do you see from it what level as well? You know, is it just from the chanting? Is it from the vocalizing that you see uh, the effects, benefits, and, and or is it also from understanding it and living it? Um, so, so many questions around the chanting. Let's begin by where. How did it begin? I was very fortunate because uh, I was kind of pulled into it when I was in high school. So in eighth grade, and it was uh, just one of those things. Uh, uh, my math teacher in my high school is uh, was also a Sanskrit uh, pundit. I was new to the school. She one day just came in and 
called me out of class and said, I'm going to start teaching you how to chant the Bhagavad Gita for competition. So she started teaching me. She was She's also a Vedantin. And she started to call me to her house so she could she could wow. teach me different things and the Bhagavatam, stories from the Bhagavatam and uh, Vedantic concepts. This was when I was in high school. I just took to it like, you know, a fish takes to water. I just loved that chanting and that that immersion in the Bhagavad Gita so much that um, when I left, I left that city, I went to medical school and then came to the U.S. I just carried that with me. So whatever she had taught me about the rules of chanting and so on, I would um, I, I learned to chant other chapters of the Bhagavad Gita using that. And it just, you know, fueled my interest in this whole thing to a very large extent and that's when I started um, studying Advaita Vedanta started studying yoga really on a deeply deep basis and uh, chanting has different effects actually because it is the the precision it depends on what you're chanting we we talk about Vedic chanting it has a lot of rules. It's a very rigid system, depending on the shaka and where, you know, which shaka you're learning from. There is a, a an incredible joy in that discipline of learning to chant complex things. It's just like dinacharya, you know, just like the diet I was talking about. You have to go through the pain of understanding the different rules of Sanskrit, the, the rules of chanting in order, and then you know, keep practicing, keep practicing until it becomes easy. And then when it becomes too easy, you move on to another difficult chant. And then you learn that. And and so, you know, like the Bhagavad Gita is relatively easy compared to, for instance, the Devi Mahatmya, M- much more difficult. The words kind of are hard to put together. But that's that requires that external chanting of understanding the rules and, and chanting externally. And once you get into that rhythm, right, it, it changes patterns in your brain. And that has been actually shown with uh, functional MRI studies, how Sanskrit chanting actually changes your neural pathways and, and expands your brain capacity. When we say brain capacity, it expands your ability to hold things in your experience. Mm -hmm. One one way of saying that is that one of the types of Agni is strengthened in that type of chanting. And and also, you know, these people who, who take to chanting as a very serious practice, they have to adhere to a very disciplined lifestyle. They wake up early in the morning, they, they take a bath, they do this, they do that. And because the chanting has become your sadhana, it is your practice. And so you see all aspects of your life are changed as a result of this. You think you're only chanting, but a lot of other things are also changing. And, and you don't want to waste energy talking about you know irrelevant things. So you start decluttering. Everything goes together because your lifestyle has to change. If you want to really become good at Sanskrit Vedic chanting, you have to declutter your life. You have to preserve your voice. You don't gossip. You don't do because you lose your power when you do such things. And you become very internally focused. Day in and day out, you're practicing it in your mind. 
see how how disciplined you become. One thing informs everything else. So I love chanting uh, as a part of my sadhana. And um, I enjoy it very much because that was my introduction to spirituality and, and to this. And I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly refining uh, Vedic chanting because I like it. And making mistakes and you know refining and then making other mistakes <laughs> and so on. <laughs> Yeah, beautiful, really beautiful. You mentioned, uh, after all, uh, this is your Kurukshetra, and, and I wanted to talk about, in, in any tradition really, but uh, because you and me both come from an Indian background, all these mythologies, yes, as children we've learned them as stories, but how do you dig down and, and give us an example of a simple story that we may have, may have heard of, but really understanding the esoteric meaning, the layers of what it really means. And I'll, I'll give you the example of... Um, of a discussion that you and me had online. Um, and this was to do with, you know, the Asuras and the Devas have the uh, Manthan. Amrita Matanam. Yeah, I, you, got, you brought the example of Amrita Matanam. And I know that many, many years ago, I actually wrote a blog post on it based oh. on your request. Oh, yeah, I had, it's actually <clears throat> one of my favorite stories in the Bhagavatam. And it has many layers of meaning. And I, I use it as an example a lot when I'm teaching with different insights in different aspects of it. Maybe your viewers know the story. It is, you know, the devas lose to the asuras in, in one of these great, um, in, in one of their constant battles. So the devas are the forces of harmony. Asuras are the forces of disharmony. And there's always a conflict between them. Sometimes Asuras win, sometimes Devas win. And basically, they're a reflection of our internal, um, you know, our microcosm. So in this story, the Devas lose and, you know, they are ousted out of their, um, out of their heavenly duties, so to speak. And they go to uh, Brahma and Brahma takes them to Vishnu and, um, and Vishnu says, yeah, I know how to solve this problem. You all need the nectar of immortality. And they, everybody is interested, you know, and he says, well, I know that the Asuras also are going to be interested in this nectar of immortality. So why don't we call all of them? And then maybe you all can work together towards this goal of getting this nectar of immortality. And the story unfolds from there. Of course, the Asuras in, are interested. And then, you know, they, they, they come up with a plan of actually bringing this huge Mandara mountain, putting it in this um, ocean and they bring the snake, uh, Vasuki, and you know, Vasuki becomes the rope. And then one side is pulling this way, one side is pulling that way. And then, and they realize that they can't really move the mountain, it's unstable. So, um, Bhagavan Vishnu takes the Kurma Avatara and uh, he lies as a tortoise under the mountain, so that churning becomes easier. And then they get tired. So he says, no, it's okay. I'll, I'll help. And he's sitting on the mountain and he's actually doing all the work. And oh, they I... think they're doing it. And then, you know, they start and then Vasuki starts spewing out all of this venom because he does not like to be churned. And there's a lot of heat generated with him, within him. And, and uh, Vishnu, you know, everybody runs away from this. And then Vishnu goes to Lord Shiva. He's the only being in the entire creation who can do something about it and Shiva nonchalantly says sure I'll help and then 
takes gathers up all of this venom uh, from Vasuki and he consumes it. Mm-hmm. And he is the yogi who has the capability of holding that in his throat and in and becomes Nilakanta, which means he doesn't allow it to go down. You know, it doesn't allow that venom to to percolate his system. He can just hold it there without processing it. And um and then they continue to do that and all kinds of gems come out of it. The white horse, the magical horse comes out of it. Airavata, the elephant comes out of it. And Mahalakshmi comes out of it. And then she, everybody is lusting after her. She says, I don't want any of you. And she goes, she only has a drishti for Mahavishnu and goes and becomes established in his heart. And finally, Dhanavantri comes out with this nectar, Amritam. And um, again, Vishnu, see, it's all his Maya because. He's the one who, you know, comes up with this plan. He's the one who assembles the devas and asuras. He's the one who convinces Vasuki. He's the one who takes the kurma avatara. He's the one churning. He's the one creating all the conflict. And he's the one resolving all the conflict. Mm. And then he takes the mohini avatara and starts mm-hmm. giving the venom to, I mean, the amritam to everybody. And uh, and Rahu are, and Ketu are created in that process. So a lot of things happen in this, which are really deeply insightful. First of all, of this understanding that I do nothing. Mm. I'm not the doer at all. It's Bhagwan is the one who is creating all this. He is the one churning this great ocean of samsara. He is the one that brings the gems. He is the one that brings the venom. Understanding that, you know, is is a huge lesson in surrender. Mm. You know, so there is that. And then, you know, when you think about it on an esoteric level, it's this churning that occurs in our sadhana, going, providing all these gems and what we will do for that nectar of immortality. For the nectar of immortality, we have to be able to hold the venom here without it being processed anywhere. As in, we are able to become equanimous. For Shiva, it does not matter whether he takes Amritam or he takes Visha. He can take both because he is supremely equanimous. Mm. To be able to take the Visha into ourselves, but have it not change us, Mm. have it not go beyond that, we have to take the experience. And how will that experience actually change in the throat? Because here is the Vishuddhi Chakra. Can you can that be transformed into Vishuddhi, the all pure? Can we take the Visha, the venom of our experience, and can it be transformed into Shiva? So my guru, you know, he always says, Sumiji, he always says, there is no Shiva without Visha. Mm. Shiva, Visha. Mm. There is no Shiv without Vish. You have to take that venom. And that that venom actually takes you to Shiva. And that happens at this Vishuddhi Chakra. So when you even thinking about Kundalini and chakras, it's a huge actually analogy even to that. Mm-hmm. You know, and then Mahalakshmi. You know, we everybody is hankering after Mahalakshmi. She doesn't care. You know, she will she will not go to a deva, she will not go to an asura. She only goes where Mahavishnu is. So you know, they say, right, if you want Lakshmi in your life, you have to be devoted to Vishnu. Mm. 
Mm. And if you have to be devoted to Vishnu, you have to surrender there. Mm. Because otherwise she leaves. She's not interested in harmony and disharmony. She only wants to go where he is. So is he my primary focus or is harmony and disharmony my focus? So many insights from just this one story. I could write a book on it. <laughs> yeah. So what's your take on Dhanavantri coming up last? Yeah, Dhan- Dhanavantri coming. He is the last one to come, right? Mm-hmm. He's, he brings the Amritam. And then, you know, uh, that Amritam is, is really the nectar of immortality, right? And we, we can't even come to that understanding of immortality until we have taken the mm-hmm. venom. And then we can understand immortality and and all of these also have hormonal uh, implications each of these things we can think of it from the standpoint of a hormone from the standpoint of a neural pathway from the standpoint of a neurohormonal pathway what does you know this white horse mean what does this iravata mean in our internal experience which is completely driven by neurohormonal pathways chemicals so what does that mean you know we could we could have so many correlations there and then you know, Mohini, even after you get the Amritam, you still have to deal with Mohini. Delusion, Maya is all powerful. She can still feed the Asuras right? mm. uh, within us. So it's not, it's not that Amrit, getting the Amrita is everything. You will always have to bow down to Mohini. As long as you're seeking that Amritam, right? You will always be on the good and bad side. But if you are Shiva, it won't matter. So many gems you know in this single one, story wow <laughs> a, a more more on a personal level where did this longing begin you know where uh, where what sort of you know what sort of grace what experience um, did you have that sort of egged you on treat it as you know how the autobiography of a yogi um, has been an incentive to so many to go on the path you know everything is grace you know, everything is grace and who knows why some people are pulled into it. Who knows why some people are not. It's all anugraha. You know, it's, it's, there is no single incident that, that stands out in my, I mean, the series of things. And, you know, the, the problem with narrating mystical experiences is that, and this has happened to me too, you know, when people speak about their, uh, like reading autobiography of a yogi, I, it was like, why isn't this happening to me? And, uh, you know, what do I lack? And so we can go into that mindset. Oh, and also, see, mystical experiences come and go. A mystical experience, everybody has it. Some people are aware of it and some people are not aware of it. Some people make a lot of it. Some people just ignore it. Mystical experiences don't really determine whether one is going anywhere with, on the spiritual journey. What really makes a difference is how your life is changing. Your moment to moment, your ordinary mundane life as you're going about. Because you can have a mystical experience and be a total jerk to your family, to your, you know, and be oblivious to, you know, all these unconscious patterns within yourself and, and keep explaining it away in some esoteric mystical fashion that is not the kind of spirituality i'm into fortunately because of my gurus so here it is really all about you know becoming completely congruent your 
were your speech, your thought, and your action being straight, straight as an arrow. No manipulation of experience. No um, posturing internally or externally, which is what we all do on a constant basis. And emptying yourself of that is really what spirituality is all about. Mystical experiences, you now you can sit down to meditate, have a wonderful experience, and then what? For instance, if I'll have students who, who are trying to stick to their viewpoints, I'll, I'll say, fine, I agree with you. Now what? You stick to your viewpoint. You feel great for having been right, but are you free? For me, the spiritual path is really a path to freedom. And freedom is a word that should be taken very seriously. Freedom from what? Freedom from myself, you know, from my own tightly held patterns. You know, for me, it has always been kind of this questioning, the logical intellectual mind that, that got me here. And to realize that the logical intellectual mind only gets you so far beyond that, it's really everything is about surrender. So, so what would you say is the, what is the aim of sadhana? So when you sit down to meditate or when you have, when you, when you try and sort of change your life, why are you doing it? When, when I say you, I mean, not just you, anybody. Yeah. Uh, that so is, that, uh, that's the most important question to ask. You know, that's, that's the question everybody should ask. I mean, thousands, millions of people actually meditate for this or that, right? They meditate because they want to be stress-free. They meditate because it's a cool thing to do. Who knows? I mean, who knows why people do what they do? But for each person, the, the question always should be, why am I doing anything? It's not just meditating. Why, why am I sitting like this? Why am I doing this? And, you know, I always give the example of what, how, and why. Okay? So the what is Kriya Shakti, the power of action. The how is the power of knowledge, jnana shakti. The why is what determines your icha shakti, your intention. For instance, the heart of wellness is not a diet book. It doesn't promise, you know, you won't lose weight in 21 days. Nothing might change for you in, in 40 days or whatever, right? But you see that our modern culture is really focused on what and how. Right? We want to keep doing what somebody else is doing, or we have the knowledge of how to do something, how to do a diet, how to do this, how to you know live in the world. We hardly question why. And the why is where that subconscious mind lies. Like, why do I even want to do that? Is it because I want to appear as a spiritual person? Now, I'll tell you one thing. Yes, we may be seeking God, but God is a different connotation in every person's mind. Some people are allergic to the word God. Some people, you know, go in tears when they hear God, right? So for me, it's meditation has never really been about being stress-free. It is not about anything else. It is, and you can say, well, it is about finding peace. Okay, what does peace mean to you and why do you want it? Because if you really want something and you define your why, right? Your how and your what will change. Because if I truly want peace, and I have really sat down and contemplated why I want peace, I will start to declutter my how and my what. 
Mm. I will stop doing things that don't bring me peace. I will start to understand what peace actually means to me. You can't lie on, this is what I'm saying, right? The what and the how are in that conscious mind, which is the tip of the iceberg. The why is what we need to question. That is where the real change happens. This is why you can go on a diet, you lose the weight, you stop the diet, you gain all the weight back because you haven't questioned the why. Why do you want to lose weight? Why? And if that is to appear a certain way to somebody, my self-image, you know, this and that, at least we need to be honest with that. But what happens is, first of all, we don't question it. And when we do question it, we just reason away what is already there rather than questioning the belief. Oh, why? Because, you know, being overweight is bad. Do you know that? Do you actually believe that? Mm-hmm. And can you question that belief? Is that even true? We hardly ever question our beliefs. Our why remains in the realm of explaining the real why. So questioning our beliefs is the first step to making any meaningful transformation. And so for me, spirituality, sadhana, everything is about that. It's about changing my why. Because what I'll do otherwise is if my why remains unquestioned, sure, I can let go of a materialistic persona and and take on a spiritual persona. Now I've become, I'm not a regular jerk. I'm a spiritual jerk, (laughs) right? And and you're just rearranging the debris. That's not the purpose of, sadhana should actually change you. It should change your why. It should, should make you go deeper and deeper within yourself where you are continuously removing everything that is not you. And that that can't happen if you don't question that. So the most fundamental question anyone should ask is, why am I doing this? Why should I meditate? Why should I have a morning routine? Why should I do anything? Why should I have, you know, whatever, bulletproof coffee, whatever it is that people are into? Why? You should ask that. Mm-hmm. And when you get the answer, you should ask why. The mm-hmm. next The next step of why. Actually, this process is not an it's not a simple linear thing you know it's a very uh holistic process and that's what um my program it's called the renegade method it's a method of self-enquiry that's what it's based on how to really get deeper into self-enquiry and and this is a program that you know this is a system i teach my long-term students we have a retreat coming up, um, open to everybody, and only taught in person because you need to go through your own process. Mm-hmm. And if you want true freedom, if you want true transformation, that's what needs to happen. So you were saying the most important question is why, and you need to constantly question, why am I sitting like this? Why am I doing this? Why am I saying this? And of course, for that, you need awareness. In many ways, that's my destination as well, isn't it? Um, And and my journey as well, because without awareness, I can't travel towards awareness. (laughs) Yeah, everything is about cultivating awareness. And that is the biggest sadhana, cultivating awareness. Um, You know, rituals, practices, meditating, doing a bunch of pranayama, doing asanas, all that is fine. Cultivating awareness of why I'm doing this and how it's changing me. Am I actually changing or am I rearranging the debris? That's something 
that I need to be really radically honest and authentic with myself about. You know, that's that's the power of having a teacher who can keep pointing out where I'm rearranging the debris. <laughs> Beautiful, Kavita. Thank you so much. Last request, really last request. It would be so nice to end with any chant, any shloka, any stotra. Would you like to do something with uh, Durga Suktam? So uh, the Durga Suktam is a short uh, kind of uh, chant. We could certainly do that if you like. Okay. And quickly tell us what it means and then let's end up with the Suktam, which would be great. Yeah, and actually I have a class on this. It's it's available and I can send you the link. Um, it's it's really a, a everything that we have been talking about, Agni, right? It is honoring this aspect of transformation as Durga. Since Navratri is coming up in a few days, that might be good. Um, Jata Veda se sunavama so mamarati yato nidahati vedaha Sanaparashadati durkani vishvat Chamatevo atiduritat yagnihi Tamagnivarinanta pasajvalantim vairojanim karma padeshu jushtaam Durkan Devi Gum Sharanamaham Prapadye Sutarasitarase Namaha Agnetvam Parayanavya Asman Svasti Bhirati Durkani Vishwa Pushta Prutvi Bahulana Urvi Bhavato Kayatanaya Shayo Vishwani no Durkaha Jata Veda Sindhuna Nava Duritati Parishi Agne Atrivan Manasakrinano Smakam Bodhya Vitata Nuna Prithana Jikatum Sahamana Mugra Magnigum Huvema Paramat Sadasthate Sanaparashadati Durkani Vishwakshamat Devo Adidurita Tegnihi Pratno Shikhamidhyo Advareshu Sanat Jahota Navyascha Satsi Swancha Agnetanuvam Piprayaswas Mapenchaso Bhagamaya Jasva Gobhir Jushtamayujo Nishiktantave Indravishno Ranushan Charema Nagasya Prishtama Bhisambasano Vaishnavil Doka Ihamadayanta Katyayanaya Vidmahe Kanya Kumari Dhimahe Tanno Durgit Prachodaya Om Shanti 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 Ah, beautiful. It was so beautiful. And thank you for sort of quickly uh, complying with my request. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kavita. It's, thank it's, you. Thank you for having me. Take care. Thank yeah. you, Sujata. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Kavita. Thank you very much. Bye. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumbo Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumbo Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. 
Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.